2: You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Simon Long. Coming up on today's show, will Joe Biden's Covid stimulus package spark a global rise in
3: inflation? Some measures of market inflation expectations have continued to creep up. And this is sort of powering this narrative that there's reflation, certainly in America's economy, and that's the direction of travel.
2: And ahead of a crucial vote count at an Amazon warehouse, could unionization finally catch on in America's tech industry.
0: To adapt Karl Marx, the geeks of the world are uniting.
2: But first, this week America, the EU, Canada, and the UK have imposed coordinated sanctions on Chinese officials accused of human rights violations against Uyghur Muslims in the western region of Xinjiang. China's responded with its own sanctions against some European officials and institutions. Tense politics complicates matters for those foreigners who hold stocks and shares in China. Investing there can be a confusing business at the best of times. It's often a volatile environment underpinned by the unwritten rule that the Chinese state will restore calm if things get too dicey. Earlier this month, share prices in China fell by 15% in two weeks, their steepest fall in years. After a few days of whispers and rumours, state-owned firms, nicknamed the national team, came to the rescue. So far, plus a change. What was different this time was that this decline in Chinese shares mirrored the decline in the Nasdaq in America. This suggests change is afoot that China's capital markets are now far more interwoven with global finance than ever before.
1: Traditionally, I'd say that there's a a mix of mutual attraction, but also a lot of mutual suspicion.
2: Simon Mubidovich is The Economist's Asia economics editor.
1: China has always wanted foreign capital to come into the country. And foreign capital, foreign investors for many years have looked at China and wanted the big returns that they think they might be able to get in the market. At the same time, though, China is very wary of foreign finance, of foreign financiers. It's one of the reasons that the country has capital controls in place to protect its domestic financial system. And foreign investors themselves have been burnt on lots of investments in Chinese companies, especially listed overseas, and they're very wary of state meddling.
2: Indeed, in your article in The Economist, you wrote about Chinese officials' attitudes to foreign financiers, as seeing them as wily Western wolves. Are they more
1: welcoming these days? China would say that they've Progressively been been more welcoming for decades, but really the process has accelerated quite notably in the last uh, three to five years. I think you can identify three big motivations for China that explain what's been going on. So two of them are domestic, are economic. Now, number one, uh, China's current account surplus, you know, connected to its trade surplus, has narrowed quite a lot, which then creates a need to attract other kinds of foreign inflows to counterbalance against that. So opening up the financial markets is one way to get foreign cash into the country. Uh, you know, Number two, China's trying to limit its reliance on debt, trying to get capital to be allocated better. Professionalizing its capital markets is one way to do that, uh, and they see that foreigners can be really useful in terms of bringing that kind of professionalizing impulse to, to the markets. The third thing is is international. Uh, You might remember a guy by the name of Donald Trump. You know, over the last four years when he was in power, pushing for China-American decoupling, China viewed the opening to to Wall Street in particular uh, as a way to, to basically fight against that, to draw America closer or to draw certain interests in America closer at the very time that America was trying to push itself farther away.
2: Indeed, far from decoupling, we've recently seen Chinese markets move more in tandem with Western capital markets. Why is that? And what does it show about the way they relate to the rest of the world's economy?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, what was going on was that partly bond yields in America were rising for foreign investors. That then leads to a big risk-off mood. Uh, you know, Chinese assets are seen as relatively risky in, in the grand scheme of things. And so they began to sell off. You then had a lot of Chinese domestic mutual funds that tried to race ahead of each other to not be caught in the sell-off. And so, you had these, these different factors coming together, but what it really means in short is that instead of just being driven by retail investors who are trading on whims, you've got professional investors and institutions responding to the same kinds of impulses that affect markets globally. Do you think this
2: trend is likely to continue? Are we going to see Chinese and global finance becoming ever more integrated? And if so, who's going to benefit from it?
1: I think it will continue. I mean, there's two big elements to the opening in China. So number one is the opening to investors. Because Chinese assets have now been included in all kinds of important global indexes, so for example, the MSCI Global Stock Markets Index, um, the uh, Barclays-Bloomberg Global Bonds Index, a lot of uh, foreign investors are compelled to invest in China's market if they want to track these indexes. Um, that's the passive side of investing. On the active side, the various different schemes that China has introduced, you know, most importantly the stock connect scheme linking the domestic stock markets in Shanghai and Shenzhen with Hong Kong make it a lot easier for Western investors to put their money to work in the Chinese market, and there are good returns to be had in China. There's also a lot of diversification because the Chinese market, although it's more in line with global markets, still is very much its own animal. On the institutional side, there also has been a lot more opening for the big foreign investment banks, the Goldman Sachs and JP Morgans of this world, to take full control of their domestic operations. Previously, they were capped at no more than 50%. Now, in many areas, including the stock market, the bond market, underwriting trading futures, they can now have wholly owned operations in China. So, you know, all these things coming together suggest that China and global finance will be more interwoven. Who will benefit? Well, I mean, I think everybody thinks that it'll be a win-win scenario. China wants the expertise and the capital and the foreign investors think that they actually have a decent chance at doing well in in China in a way that in the past number of decades, they they were really kept to the sidelines.
2: You say that China's markets are still very much their, their own animal. That animal is one in which the state and the Communist Party still plays a very big role, doesn't it? So what sort of risks does that bring for foreign investors?
1: I mean, it does pose all kinds of risks, and I think risks that many of them are unfamiliar with. You know, the state really does set the parameters of the markets. For institutions here, they can only really get so far. You know, if, if there's going to be a big IPO domestically um, by a big Chinese company, you better believe that the juiciest mandates are going to be given to big state owned firms. So foreign banks will be there, but they'll be on the sidelines. And then they can easily find themselves getting into trouble as well because of the political rifts that have opened up between China and the West. It's not on the investment banking side, but on the commercial banking side, you know, HSBC right now stands as the best example of that. Uh, it was, of all the big Western commercial banks in China, the most gung-ho on the market, expanding quite aggressively. But because it's now been implicated in America's aggressive pursuit of Huawei, the Chinese telecoms company, um, HSBC has found that that business has, has gotten very, very difficult for, for itself here. Off the record, it's believed that China has been telling companies to shift their accounts from HSBC to other foreign banks. And then for the investors, you know, one of the big questions is, when the going is good, the door is open to them. But if China really does get into economic trouble, will the door be open for them to take the money out of the country?
2: You mentioned political tensions. And, and just this week, we're seeing coordinated Western sanctions against China. I mean, how does that fit in with the integrating trend you're describing?
1: Well, I think for the last number of years, investors and markets have viewed the discussion of decoupling almost as background noise that they can ignore because you've had this very, very strong coupling in the financial markets and all these different openings. But I think it's very clear that as the tensions between China and the West get a lot bigger, they will no longer be able to ignore it. So finance has been the big exception to the worsening politics over the last number of years. I think the question for the next few years is, does finance find itself getting pulled into the chasm and do all those hopes for the great Chinese market end up draining away?
2: Thank you, Simon. Inflation has felt like the ghost at the feast ever since the global financial crisis, with lots of speculation about when it will return. This month, a survey by Bank of America found that fear of inflation has overtaken the coronavirus pandemic as investors' biggest worry. And last week, one bond market measure of inflation expectations reached its highest level since July 2008. The concern is that massive stimulus could cause the American economy to overheat with global consequences. But how likely is inflation to rise? And are they right to be so concerned?
3: For a long time, we've been in this world of low inflation and everything's based on low inflation. Henry Kerr is our economics editor. That in turn props up uh, very high asset prices. And also low inflation is basically what gives policymakers the scope to try to boost unemployment, to try and help the economy in the short term. So what we continue to see this year is some people, some economists, some financial market analysts saying that we're at risk of coming out of the pandemic into a higher area of inflation, and from many perspectives, that would be a bad thing because it would reduce the, uh, the policy space available to uh, central banks and, and the like.
2: One of those economists, of course, is Larry Summers, the former US Treasury Secretary, who seems to have created quite a furore with remarks he made. What exactly did he say and why were they so provocative?
3: Yes, well, Larry Summers has been for some time banging the drum for saying that President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus is excessive and might overheat America's economy. And here's what he said to Bloomberg.
4: This is the least responsible macroeconomic policies we've had in the last 40 years. I think fundamentally it's driven by intransigence on the Democratic left and intransigence and in completely unreasonable behavior in the whole of the Republican Party.
3: Why is Larry Summers saying this? Well, he. Thinks that essentially we have given up economics in favor of politics, that the economic advisors within the administration haven't quite done their job of saying just how large the Biden stimulus is relative to the likely shortfall in the economy. He thinks that there's going to be a really rapid bounce back from the pandemic, which is, by the way, increasingly the consensus view. I mean, even the Federal Reserve hugely upgraded its growth forecasts recently after the Biden stimulus. But Summer sees a a risk that that bounce back runs in excess of the economy's supply constraints. And that would mean that prices would rise much more rapidly. And so he sees this potential breakout moment. I should say, though, that he hedged his bets quite a lot. He said there was a 33% chance of some sort of nasty inflation breakout, but also a 33% chance that the administration gets what it wants, which is fast growth and low inflation. And then the other 33% was that the Federal Reserve stops inflation by raising interest rates very fast, which is something that it currently says it's not plans to.
2: So I suppose with that degree of hedging, he stands quite a fair chance of being right. But Henry, when we last spoke about this on Money Talks a couple of months back, I think, already people were worrying about the amount of stimulus that was going to be poured into the American economy. Inflation fears were already rumbling. I mean, how much worse have things got since then?
3: So what we've seen, I think, since we last spoke was repricing in bond markets. That had already happened to some degree, but it's continued. The 10-year Treasury yield, for instance, has continued to creep up. Uh, some measures of market inflation expectations have continued to creep up. And this is sort of powering this narrative that there's reflation in the world economy, or certainly in America's economy, and that's the direction of travel. You've got to hedge that with the fact that if you look at the level of inflation expectations in markets, as opposed to the rate of change, it's still perfectly consistent with the Federal Reserve's target. In fact, you can argue that it's still slightly below where they'd like to be ideally. So it's more sort of direction of change thing than, uh, oh my God, inflation expectations are already out of control. But that direction of change is really powering a lot of this inflation talk.
2: But looking at that that, uh, scenario, the bad out of control inflation one, what would it take for that to come to pass?
3: Well, here we get into the realm of economists' uncertainty when it comes to knowing exactly what drives inflation. It's been a hot topic of conversation for a while. I wrote a whole special report on it in 2019. Generally, what people would say is that we're going to see higher inflation for sure this year because oil prices have gone up a lot since the depth of the pandemic in 2020. There was a big slump in inflation a year ago, and that's going to drop out the numbers and that sort of mechanically raises inflation. Then you've got the question of whether the economy might overheat and generate a bit more inflation. And then you've got the question of, well, what might turn those two things, which are fundamentally temporary, into a permanent increase in inflation or a long-term increase in inflation? And basically, everyone agrees that what that requires is for inflation expectations to move a lot, for people to sort of stop trusting economic policy to ultimately keep inflation anchored in the long run. And so that's what the Federal Reserve says at the moment. The Federal Reserve says, well, if you look at inflation expectations, they're still anchored around our target. So that gives us the leeway to do what we want, if you like, in the short term, because we know that so long as that long term picture isn't dislodged, people know everything else is going to be temporary. There are the three things I would say, an increasing level of uncertainty. We know we're going to get a small uptick in inflation. Then there's the question of the overheat. And then there's the question of whether those temporary factors become permanent. And that requires inflation expectations to move.
2: And how about the rest of the world, Henry? I mean, particularly emerging markets, I suppose, must be watching all this very closely. We're seeing inflation fears in some of them and crisis this week in the market in Turkey. What should emerging markets take from what's going on in the American economy?
3: Well, for emerging markets, the US interest rate outlook matters a lot. It affects the value of their currencies. That in turn affects their domestic inflation. And the real fear of higher rates in emerging markets is justified when you look at the past, say, in 2013, when the prospect of tighter monetary policy in America caused what was called the taper tantrum, which hurt emerging markets. Now, a lot of emerging markets are not as exposed as they were then. That said, they face fundamentally the same problem with regard to inflation expectations, which is emerging markets have inspired less confidence in their economic regime and that has meant that it's been difficult for them to respond to short-term problems with monetary and fiscal stimulus because people have immediately worried about the long-term consequences. In this crisis, they're in a bit of a better position because of low inflation, their central banks perhaps a bit more credible. They've got a bit more flexibility to fight the pandemic in the short term. But the example of what's happening in Turkey really does show you the traditional emerging market problem, which is because the central bank governor, who was a sort of credible policymaker, has been fired, it's completely blown up the credibility of the whole macroeconomic regime. And so the risk of higher inflation and indeed a currency crisis looms large, and that ends up really inhibiting your ability to do anything in the short term. So I'd say Turkey is at the extreme end of the spectrum that shows what emerging markets have to avoid. But incrementally, their life is made worse by higher interest rates in America. And so if you did get to a point where the Fed needed to raise rates to see off inflation, that would uh, make life harder for them.
2: Thanks, Henry. For more on the financial crisis in Turkey, listen to our sister podcast, The Intelligence, tomorrow, Wednesday, March the 24th. And for more analysis of the consequences of President Biden's unprecedented fiscal stimulus, go to economist.com. If you're not yet a subscriber, you can find your best offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link's in
1: the show notes. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.
2: Unionization is an old force in the workplace. In America, however, it's been losing steam for decades. Trade unions represent only 7% of private sector workers. No significant piece of pro-union legislation has been passed in recent years. But now the union movement has been showing signs of life in, of all places, the technology industry. Unionisation drives are causing headaches for some of the world's biggest tech firms.
0: It's something pretty unexpected, I think.
2: Tamsin Booth is our technology and business editor.
0: So overall, workers in America, only about 12% of them are represented by a union. And tech workers, even less so. So fewer than 5% of computer and IT workers belong to a union. And it's not hard to imagine why they're not. They're not usually underpaid or treated poorly. But now, to adapt Karl Marx, the geeks of the world are uniting. So in January, you saw that after months of organising themselves in secret, hundreds of workers at Alphabet announced an Alphabet Workers Union. They said that this was going to protect workers, our global society and our world. And it's not just at Alphabet. In a few days on March 29th, voting is going to conclude at an Amazon fulfillment center in Bessemer, Alabama. And the result of that vote will be hugely significant, not just for Amazon, but for unions everywhere and not, not only in tech. So, Amazon is the second largest private employer in the US. It has strongly resisted unionization for 25 years using all kinds of tactics but there's not much it can do about this vote that's going on. Labor organizing and big tech is just having a real moment and it's coinciding with some change politics around unions in the US. As you know, President Joe Biden has supported the Amazon workers' right to vote.
2: I've long said America wasn't built by Wall Street. It was built by the middle class and unions built the middle class. Unions put power in the hands of workers. They level the playing field.
0: It's actually more surprising to hear conservative Republican Marco Rubio come out in support of the vote.
1: It's very simple for me. The largest, richest company in the world and a champion of wokeness that all it does is beat up on conservatives versus hardworking Americans who just want to get paid a little more and have better work conditions. It's an easy choice.
2: Why do workers at Amazon and Alphabet feel they need unions now when they didn't some while ago.
0: Well, I spoke to Andrew Gaynor dewar uh, he's a software engineer and organiser at the Alphabet Workers Union, and asked him exactly that. Why is this happening now?
4: I think we're entering a new golden age of unions. It's a new economy. It's a very different economy. But I think the same issues apply today for software engineers and warehouse workers that applied 100 years ago for coal miners and timber workers. We want... Dignity and a voice in the workplace and safe working conditions and fair pay. 20 years ago, when these companies were founded, they were tiny. In Google's case, literally a handful of people working in a garage. Today, more than 200,000 people work for Alphabet around the world. About half of those are direct employees and about half of them are vendors and contractors and temps. The kinds of worker issues that can be addressed when it's just half a dozen people in a garage need a very different approach when you have hundreds of thousands of people all over the world working in a huge number of different kinds of jobs through a complex network of subsidiary and contractor companies trying to fight for what's important to them as workers, but against a a juggernaut rather than just against the guy at the next desk.
0: The AWU is already claiming a bit of success in the case of Shannon Waite, she was an Alphabet Union member who complained about working conditions on social media and got suspended. The AWU championed her claim that she was retaliated against for talking about pay. And just a few days ago, she was invited back to work. The union says they're also building on previous sort of less organized successes incidents at Google where, for instance, 20,000 women walked out in 2018 over the handling of sexual harassment cases. Other employee pressure has made Google drop some projects that became controversial with the Pentagon and potential new search engine designed just for China.
2: As a fairly well-paid software engineer, Mr. Gaynor Duar, whom you spoke to, and many of his fellow organisers, are a very different kind of union advocate than the movements they model themselves on from a century ago. Uh,
0: How does that shape their efforts? Some true blue-collar union observers really quite sharply criticise them for sort of betraying those kind of roots and and that kind of movement that they just don't really belong. I think you can see there's a big difference between the Amazon warehouse staff, clearly, who are much more obviously connected to the blue-collar roots of unionisation. The AWU, on the other hand, yes, they've got some very well-paid members. And by the way, that's quite helpful because what they charge for their dues is 1% of total compensation. So they've got a pretty big pot by now. But I think it's unfair to criticise the AWU for being full of coddled coders, as some do, because they are definitely also intent on improving working conditions for much lower paid data centre workers and other Tents, vendors, and contractors, or TVC workers. So, Shannon Waite, for instance, was one of those. I mean, it's true that the AWU has decided to stay a minority union and it can't do sort of formal collective bargaining through the national bodies, but it can lobby effectively on behalf of employees across different levels of the organisation. And here's Andrew Gaynor Duar again.
4: Splitting workers off from the working class to try to break down solidarity is a union busting tactic that's as old as time. Software engineers need unions because there are things that we need as workers that we can get by working together. Warehouse workers need unions because there are things that warehouse workers need that they can get by standing together as workers. And at a giant conglomerate like Alphabet or Amazon that employs workers across a huge range of jobs, Standing together across all of those categories gives us more strength and more solidarity.
2: But Tamsin, how much of a difference do you expect these new-look unionization efforts to make?
0: The AWU's priority for now is growing its member base. It's it's really shot up. It's about 800 members now, which is still under 1% of Alphabet's global workforce. But it's a number of people that you can't easily push around too much. I think there's a really important distinction to make between the position of alphabet and the position of amazon in front of these unionization efforts alphabet with its very profitable digital advertising model can certainly afford to improve the conditions of its tvcs if it wants to but for amazon it's a lot harder the profit margins it has on its e-commerce business which is where you have the warehouse workers are already really quite thin If the Bessemer facility unionises, for instance, what's likely to happen is that they will then negotiate for a much better deal with the company. And it's hard not to see that spreading right across America and even globally for Amazon. What that could do is really damage Amazon's flexibility and speed. So perhaps workers would ask for better shift work for those with seniority, or they might want to limit automation of jobs. Amazon might have to pass on extra costs to the customer and they could go elsewhere. You know, there's lots of competition. So it's a really very stark difference in terms of the risks for Alphabet and Amazon from unionisation efforts.
2: Tamsin Booth, thank you. And our thanks to Andrew Gaynor-Juar. And thank you for listening to Bunny Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The producers are Amika Shortina-Nolan, and Steve Hanke. The editor is Sandra Schmooley. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist.
1: This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets.